Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It is now Jeff Kavanaugh, United States Supreme Court Justice. National U.S. Women's Organization stands firmly with Justice Kavanaugh, and I spoke with Kimberly Fletcher. She's the founder of Mums of America. A quote from a former liberal MP, by now it should be apparent even to some in media that this guy is unhinged. He clearly has issues and should perhaps seek professional help. That's former liberal MP Dan McTague talking about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. National outrage continues over the killer of eight-year-old Tory Stafford's transfer from prison with bars and locks to an Aboriginal healing lodge. Harry Goldkind is a Toronto lawyer and media critic Listen to what he said. Immigrants, if after three years you fail a language proficiency test, you'll be expelled. That's what Quebecers voted for just days ago. It's the position of Quebec Premier-elect Francois Legault, leader of the CAC Party. Beryl Wiseman is the editor-in-chief of The Suburban, Quebec's largest English circulation language paper. And I spoke with Beryl Wiseman about the new Quebec administration. The Indian Resources Council is an indigenous advocacy organization which represents the oil and gas-associated interests of over 130 First Nations communities in Canada. Stephen Buffalo is the president and CEO. We spoke about Bill C-69, which Stephen Buffalo and IRC once changed. Sad email from a father of a 22-year-old addicted to heroin and fentanyl. She died of an overdose of illegal fentanyl sold by a criminal drug dealer. The father hoped for the capture, conviction, and imprisonment of the drug dealer. However, observing the treatment afforded to child killer Terry Lynn McClintock, the father emailed, after this whole miscarriage of justice regarding Tory Stafford, what's the point? I spoke with him. I got a new Supreme Court justice, Brett Kavanaugh being the uh, latest member of the Supreme Court of the United States. Kimberly Fletcher is the founder and president of MomsofAmerica.us. She joins us on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Kimberly, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. And before we get into other issues, how do you assess the last two to three weeks in this struggle, and it's been a struggle, to uh, to confirm Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court? How do you assess what's going on? Uh, shocking and deplorable. <laughs> I I spent the last two weeks in Washington, D.C., and I I watched it before I went out there, but when I got there, I had no idea just how incensed everybody was and how the, 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 the Democrat Party, members of the Democrat Party, were working directly with these feminists, radical feminists, obstructionists, um, protesters, and they were they were snarling, they were screaming, they were wearing Believe Women t-shirts. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I, as an American citizen, and <laughs> I've been my whole entire life, uh, I was literally shocked at the behavior of American citizens, of people who have sworn an oath to defend and protect the Constitution and women. I was I was embarrassed to be a woman watching these women w- women behave against men, against our country, against our Constitution. It was it was crazy. I- I've never seen anything like it. Now you say you noticed that when you got to Washington D.C. Am I hearing you say? And I've heard somebody else say this as well. Outside the Beltway, 
the issue wasn't nearly as um, divisive as it clearly appeared on television. No, outside the Beltway. I mean, I will tell you that the vast majority of women in America were completely disgusted by the entire fiasco perpetrated by members of Congress and and these conglomerate of of organizations that were all radical feminist groups. And, And as a victim of sexual abuse myself, I have been appalled that sitting United States senators would marginalize sexual violence against women, making it appear as if, you know, Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation is a vote for or against survivors of sexual assault. That, that's absurd. To reduce the plight of survivors to pawns in a proxy war over, over a, a Supreme Court seat is, is morally reprehensible. And when the radical feminists started labeling senators voting for Kavanaugh as rape apologists, I mean, that just pretty much, that pretty much skyrocketed, you know, the mama bear and, and, and me and everybody else in the country. The majority of, of women in this country were absolutely opposed to this behavior, and we supported Judge Kavanaugh. But the media didn't want to hear us. There were multiple times where we were around the media, and they were talking to protesters or members of, of, of the Senate. And when we would say, well, well we, have, you know, we have something to say, they literally looked at our faces in front of our faces and said, we only care about, we're only talking to uh, protesters. We're not talking to people who support him. I mean, they just, they came right out and they said it. Facebook was, was blocking us. Uh, Twitter was shadow banning us. And, and we just got so fed up, we just, a bunch of us just came to Washington, hundreds of us, but you never saw that. So mainstream media organizations were telling you flat out, we're not talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the radical feminists were telling us that um, the, the Constitution is propaganda. The, um, the elected officials, the, the senators, wouldn't even see us. The, the Republican senators were, were, were empowered by our presence because all they saw before we came was all of these women who were who were snarling and mean and making it about, you know, their victimization. But when you watch them on air, you know, they sounded they sounded compelling and they were just, you know, all upset and how can you do this? Like when they attacked Jeff Lake, the moment the camera stopped rolling, they turned around and went, Okay, let's go to the next group. You're like I mean it was just they were they were acting and it was an incredible acting job and the mainstream media was their megaphone. And they didn't want to hear anything that we had to say. So the mainstream media had their story. They were going to push their story, push their interpretation of the story, and create only an impression that that was going on, that there was no other side to the issue. Now, what do you make of uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford? You know, prior to, uh, I did an interview on Fox on Wednesday. We had a press conference, and I had an interview. And one of the things that just frustrated me so much is that when the Democrats started to say, you know, she was credible, we believe her. And then every time the Republicans would, would talk about her, they'd say, well, she was credible, but... And I said, no, she wasn't credible. You're using the wrong word. You're using their word. Stop using that word. She was compelling. Her, 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 her story was compelling. It was emotionally driven, but it was not credible because without corroboration and substantiation, it's just a good story. And, and so the moment that I put that out there, suddenly all the senators started using the word compelling instead of credible, and I'm like, well, thank God. <laughs> Somebody's got some common sense. I definitely think something, or either something actually happened to her or she's convinced something that ha- happened to her. But I will say that if, if a woman has a problem...
six years with a guy rubbing his genitals up against her, then she's the one with the problem and she should seriously seek some professional help because I am very concerned for her well-being. What do you say to the argument or the question or the position that has been taken and expressed that because uh, Judge Kavanaugh is now a, a member of the Supreme Court of the United States and uh, because Dr. Ford's uh, testimony was essentially deemed to be not, well, it clearly was deemed to be not sufficiently powerful to, to end the nomination process or the appointment process for uh, Judge Kavanaugh, that other women will now feel intimidated again about coming out and, and speaking openly about sexual abuse that's been perpetrated against them. What do you say to that? I think the exact opposite is true. I think that our men are terrified. I think that our sons are terrified, and I know that mothers are terrified of of what these radical feminists are doing to our culture when they're making women you always need to believe and men are always the villains. That that is going to be that's what's going to be the greatest upset of this whole entire thing. The the women who have been who have been abused, who have been assaulted. I mean, true assault. Okay, mm-hmm. they they have marginalized this idea of of assault and and abuse, and that is a big problem because you know he batted his eyes at me or he stroked his arm on on my back. I mean, like seriously, man up, woman up. You know, it, <laughs> you you don't have to put up with that. Just tell him no. Now, there are real cases where there's still sexual harassment out there. Okay, so stand up and, and fight against it. But I'll tell you what, in our culture, at least in, at least in our country, in the United States, the greatest threat, the, the greater threat is against men and boys because women are always right and they get to call all the shots. There's no responsibility, no culpability whatsoever. If they go out to a bar and they have a bunch of drinks with a guy, and, and they say, hey, yeah, let's go keep hanging out, and they go to, you know, one of their apartments, and then they end up having sex, and the next morning she's like, crap, I wish I hadn't have done that. I was drunk. He's an assaulter. He's an assault. He has assaulted her, and she is a victim. That's absurd. Now, uh, he has just as much culpability yeah. in that as he does. Kimberly, you have about 60 seconds left. You've said a lot of things that, uh, that are going to make, it, make, make people sit straight up, and they're either going to agree with you or they're going to strongly disagree with you. You know that. What about Mums uh, uh, yeah. of America? You're a national organization, right? We are. And can you tell me roughly how many members you have? Uh, we have um, about 50,000 members of um, active members. And we have a network and outreach of up to 300,000. But, but our membership is doubling every time I talk about this because <laughs> it's what moms care about. And, and a lot more people agree with me than don't. Well, yeah, I've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of stories about you and about the organization. And certainly you're getting a great deal of attention. Um, I hope you'll come back on the show. There are other things we're going to talk about, about the United States, which seems to be uh, internally tearing itself apart, at least according to some American polling done by Rasmussen. Kimberly Fletcher, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Kimberly Fletcher, uh, mumsofamerica.us. Dan McTagg, though, has said some things about our prime minister. Uh, and he said them on this program, but I tell you, Dan, I sat straight up and... Uh, <laughs> I looked at it a second time, and I thought, well, I have to talk to my friend about this. You, uh, you commented on social media. By now, it should be apparent, even to some of the media, that this guy is unhinged. He clearly has issues and should perhaps be, seek professional help. And you're talking about the very same Justin Trudeau. What got into you? Well, it's not what got into me, but I think uh, Canadians have been 
really witness to a number of very bizarre and very odd uh, outcomes from a prime minister who is given uh, to changing moods, mind, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, acts in a way that I think is generally unbecoming. And what I think brought this to my attention, of course, was the context in which a opposition vote, supply vote on uh, ensuring that uh, the murder of uh, uh, Ms. Young, Ms. McClintock, uh, in fact, faced uh, justice uh, and, in fact, was returned to um, to uh, to the penitentiary uh, to face her maximum fines as opposed to being sent to a healing house. And, of course, we all understand the story, but it was the reaction of the Prime Minister that I think was over the top and certainly not something that one would expect of the leader of a country in terms of storming out of a vote, taking to the cameras, and then, you know, hurling insults and labeling uh, any member of parliament, let alone the opposition, uh, as ambulance chasers. Uh, it seems to me that if you're going to reserve those kind of comments, you do so in debate, you do so within the confines of the House of Commons, uh, or you, uh, you after the vote, uh, make your position very clear. But it seems that this kind of erratic behavior, unscripted, uh, which I think catches a lot of Canadians off guard, uh, really brings to question and to mind whether or not there is something far more serious here. And I believe that there is. This isn't the first time we've seen erratic behavior from a prime minister who I think is beholden to the high office in which he's been elected. Uh, if he has those views, that's fine. Debate them. But uh, certainly not come out uh, pronouncing, making statements that are uh, highly incendiary, insulting, but more importantly, uh, in the context of such a very serious matter. I don't you know, recall any prime minister, left no, or right, no. uh, or leader of my party, the Liberal Party, ever making such uh, weird, uh, you know, casting aspersions on others in, in such a context. And so for that reason, uh, given that we've seen a series of these things happen, uh, the uh, event a couple of years back where he uh, pushed a couple of NDP members over. Uh, uh, it seems like he loses it. He snaps. Mm -hmm. And it's something he's got to be able to Well, you know, your, your friend M Michelle Simpson, who was his seatmate, as you know, former Liberal MP, has told us on this program that he has a very short fuse. But like you, uh, when, I, when, I, when I watched what he was doing and saying, I also look into the body language, uh, when it came to McClintock, I, I, I had a feeling this guy is unstable. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I do so... And I've got, thir I, you know, I have the, the, the usual 30 seconds, Dan, so fire away. Yeah, no, look, I, I'm not looking to make a political commentary. I'm, I'm more concerned that. about the fact that there is an issue here uh, that has to be addressed, and someone is going to have to have the intestinal fortitude to come out and say, you know, the emperor has no clothes. There is a problem here. I've yeah. spoken to two liberal MPs. They confirm the same, and these are okay. sitting members of Parliament. They are we are, we, you and I will talk more. Thank you for the time. Take care, Roy. Have a great Thanksgiving. Gas, you know, to gasbuddy.com, Chief uh, Analyst Dan McTague, former Liberal Member of Parliament on uh, Justin Trudeau on the McClintic story. Harry Goldkind is a criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's also a media commentator and took a run at politics. I saw Mr. Goldkind on uh, CTV television. And, Harry, thank you for joining us. And what you said and the, the, the emotion that you put into what you said is far more indicative of the of what it is Canadians are feeling and what they want to hear than what we heard from our Prime Minister. So if I can ask you to please just revisit the the the, the stance and the positions and the the attitude and the dialogue of the Prime Minister of Canada toward the people of Canada on the disposition of Terry Lynn McClintock. 
Good afternoon, Roy. Good to be on with you, and I appreciate the kind words. Just to sort of paraphrase myself, because if anybody wants to see it, it was about a seven-and-a-half-minute interview where I went off on the Prime Minister. I begin the summary by saying, it always surprises me that people assume a level of intelligence in our Prime Minister that there's no logical reason, and I don't mean this as an insult, for him to be given the benefit of that doubt. There are various people in politics that are well-educated, that come from different backgrounds, that are Rhodes Scholars. There's a level of intelligence ascribed to him that I don't think is there, and I think we saw, given that he had to think on his feet there, the fact that he really is usually incapable of doing it in a way that impresses most Canadians who aren't overtly partisan. And let me be very clear to your listeners, Roy, I'm not a member of any political party, I have issues with all three. There are things that Mr. Trudeau does that I'm just fine with. But for him to stand there in the House of Commons and not understand the political nature of this issue, this is not a judicial issue. This is not interfering, as he has actually done before, Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau incorrectly. This is not interfering with a judge or a jury. This is not commenting on a verdict, for example, Colton Bushy, where he didn't like the verdict because he didn't have the brain power to understand it. This is calling people who criticize Miss McClintock being moved to Club Fed, or they're calling it benignly a healing lodge. He called those politicians ambulance chasers. And the way I interpreted that, Roy, and perhaps I'll pause my summary here, is that the politicians in the House of Commons who Mr. Trudeau besmirched by calling them a very low name that people call some lawyers, he doesn't even understand that that's a lawyer insult, not a politician insult. That's how empty his suit often is when he's not being fed lines by his chief of staff. He was insulting, in my view, and I mean this literally, Roy, there's no hyperbole here. All of the Canadians across the country who have eight-year-olds, and I emphasize, I don't have an eight-year-old little girl. I don't have children. But if I was in the position of pretending or assuming that little Tory Stafford was my eight-year-old child and I thought it was wrong that she was moved in a life sentence to a healing lodge where she self-identifies as Native and plays the Native card, and I asked my representative to discuss that in the House of Commons, the very body, not Twitter, not Facebook, not anti-social media as I call it, but to raise that in the House of Commons and then to be smeared in an insulting attack way from the empty suit of our Prime Minister, I thought it was outrageous and gutless on his behalf, and it actually showed me, uh, Roy, that he literally does not rise to the level of a leader, because if he disagreed with the Tory politicians, if he disagreed with me, he could very eloquently have stood there and said, look, I understand the outrage, but we have a good correctional service of Canada, we're not going to pull the strings like Pinocchio, but we will order a review of the decision, which is what Mr. Goodell said. So I thought Mr. Trudeau just looked absolutely amateurish and totally, totally unbecoming to insult every parent who had a concern about how Miss McClintock fell through the cracks by playing the Indigenous card. And Ari, he has children of roughly that age himself. And as you know, Roy, you may have seen this before we chatted, I put out something, a little bit of writing that said, I wonder if Mr. Trudeau would have used the ambulance chasing line if, God forbid, and I emphasize this, Roy, if, God forbid, Tory Stafford was somebody who he knew, who he babysat, 
who was a, a child of a member of his liberal or NDP party, uh, because both parties felt this way with that ambulance chasing name. I can't imagine Mr. Trudeau, who I do think has a good heart, who I do think is a decent man, attacking the Tories if it happened to be eight-year-old Tory Stafford, the daughter of one of his cabinet members. Yeah. I think he's been programmed to respond to conservative challenges in a certain way. And, and it provides him with some opportunity to move a little bit uh, on the commentary. But the fundamentals, the nucleus of the commentary is always the same. And that's what he reached for this time because he doesn't have the skill sets to think through a situation and to deal with it and to, not, and to recognize this is not a political debate. This is a debate of the heart. And as you said, any parent of a child who's eight years of age or close to eight years of age would just actually be horrified in what they saw and heard from the Prime Minister of Canada. And, and th there, there are so many areas he could have explored. There are so many options he had to, to, to speak to this issue. Even if he just deferred to his public safety minister, I think that, that, would, have been, that would have been better. But he chose to take it on, and now he needs to wear what he's done. I don't know that he can even understand how offensive, how troublesome, and frankly, how depressing what he said has been. I think that's true, Roy, but there's a broader problem here where he stands up in the House of Commons and somehow he pretends he represents parents on this issue. And last time I checked, Roy, parents are who pay the taxes in this country. Yeah. Most taxpayers who uh, go to work every day, they happen to have a child or two, sometimes three. I don't have any, and I pay a whack of taxes, but I'm an outlier. And what I think the bigger picture is, Roy, is that this is going to be a tempest in a teapot. This will be long forgotten when the next outrage cycle comes. But to me, it's, again, a condemnation sort of of all of us where we'll go on to Twitter and Facebook and anti-social media to moan and groan. But what won't we do, Roy? And I really mean this, by the way. We won't go to the ballot box. We won't actually go vote. Our voter turnout rate will continue to be lower than most other Western developed countries. He will perhaps win again with 39% of the vote of eligible voters, most who stay home. So when we get our necks all bent out of shape about this, I do think the finger deserves to be pointed at him. But I also think, Roy, and I mean this no offense to myself and listeners, we also have to look in the mirror and point at ourselves and wonder what keeps us from taking an hour to go vote. I agree with you 100% because he won in 19, in 2015, he won, uh, somebody else did the calculus, not me. He yeah. won with 27% of the eligible vote. If you look at how many of the eligible voters actually turned out to vote, somewhere around 60%, and then you look at the roughly 40% that, I think it was around 40% that he got, then that means 27%, according to the calculus that was done by somebody who's far smarter with numbers than me, that means he became the prime minister of a majority government with 27% of the eligible vote. And that does, as you say, point the finger directly back at us. Oh, I think so, too. And you see, and I, and I do want to extrapolate this, there's a lot of discussion south of the border today about what's gone on with Brett Kavanaugh and how he was confirmed. And the link that I think some very clever people are making as well, because I talk about this all the time, sort of falls on deaf ears, is, you know, aren't, aren't we, and I lump myself into this, Roy, I'm not immune from my own criticism, aren't we just heroes, a word that has been completely perverted in our society, where the word hero means nothing, 
but we're heroes from yelling at our senators or kicking them out of restaurants or booing them out when they're uh, working out, like Bill de Blasio this morning, the mayor of New York. But I'll tell you something, the greatest act that people can do if they really want the courage of their convictions to stand is to head to a ballot box. And we're seeing right now all of the chatter and motion on anti-social media about this, the, the number of likes and people measure their avatars and their virtue signaling and retweets and likes. But, you know, we have some elections coming up here all across this land. And I always think that there's a disconnect, Roy, and I feel very strongly about this that there's a very big disconnect between what Prime Minister Trudeau and all the virtue signalers, the politically correct say, as if that represents the other 75 75 or 65 percent of Canadians, depending on the math. And I always wonder, why don't the people at their dinner table, it's Thanksgiving today, why don't the people who have common sense sitting at their dinner table go out and exercise their vote? And they don't. And that's why we end up with all of these things, like Ms. McClintock, going to a healing lodge back to the task at hand who butchered, raped, and set up to be murdered an eight-year-old girl. And the, the details of the crime, Roy, I won't even go into. I'm a criminal lawyer. I covered the case. I won't do it because I don't want viewers to spit out their lunch. But, you know, this is the very issue that represents something that I think is nonpartisan. Why there's anything partisan about thinking a killer like this should be behind bars, whether it's maximum or medium security. I don't understand how that's a liberal NDP, Maxime Bernier, uh, Andrew Scheer kind of issue, but this is why so many Canadians are lazy in their outrage, and I think you can't be lazy in your outrage. I agree, and I've said many times when we've talked about (laughs) issues that mattered at the time that created a tremendous amount of national fallout and, uh, and, and response, just try to remember this at the time of the election. Don't forget, and don't be sidetracked by a non-issue. Political campaigns, election campaigns are often fought and won on issues that don't matter. They become It's a news release from a party or a public relations release from a party that is turned into a news story that is irrelevant, and they, they manage the story, and we allow ourselves to be managed. We're going to have to take responsibility for and take uh, ownership of the, uh, of the election campaign. Ari, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's, it's refreshing to hear you. I know you're nonpartisan uh, in your positions. I've, I've read quite a few of your, of your pieces, and uh, you, you dispense your distaste for what goes on uh, equally, and I, I find myself agreeing with you most of the time. So. Well, I appreciate that, Roy, because often I feel like I'm an island on my own, just you know, shaking my head at the fact that certain things are even issues to be uh, discussed. But that's the world we live in. I hope you'll come back. I would anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Ari Goldkind, lawyer in Toronto, is so correct. Uh, Beryl Weissman is the editor-in-chief of The Suburban. It's the largest English-language circulation newspaper weekly in, in the province of Quebec. He's also a former colleague of mine when we worked together at was, once was AM 940 in Montreal. How are you, my friend? Good to talk to you, Roy. By the way, proud to say that the Suburban is now the second biggest paper in any language in Quebec. Wow. A lot. A distant second from the Journal de Montréal, but second nonetheless with a quarter million readers. Congratulations. Well deserved. Now, let me start with, before we get into the expectations for Francois Legault, uh, because in, in, in Ontario and in much of the rest of the country, the debate around Quebec has always been about sovereignty. That's not the case now. But what's the impact of this election on the rest of the country, and what's the potential impact 
on the federal election. And let me start with the carbon tax. Where does Legault stand on the carbon tax? And is it is it to be expected that he may be an ally for Premier Moe and Premier Pallister and Premier Ford? Or is he more likely to play ball with Trudeau? Uh, no, he's against the carbon tax, in my opinion, rightly so. Um, and he's said very openly he wants to be the business premier, he wants more foreign investment, and he wants to get rid of a lot of the impediments to foreign investment. So uh, that's not going to be a major issue uh, for him. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the differences between the two parties was that uh, there were Western investors, Alberta investors, who had acquired uh, millions of acres of land that they wanted to start fracking for natural gas because they discovered a uh, reserve as large as the Utica Shale. And the Liberals were against that. And we're, we've yet to see where the the CAQ is going to go on that, but they're certainly more favorably inclined to at least look at things. You know that we broadcast uh, in Alberta. And, of course, the great concern in Alberta and the great frustration has been the pipeline issue. And if we're talking about pipelines in Alberta, then we look at Quebec and we see Energy East and the Liberals. Is there a chance here with Francois Legault and the CAQ that they will express an interest in and perhaps support the Energy East pipeline? Uh, definitely an interest. The question is, will the companies come back? I've written so many words about that Energy East disaster. It was, it was stupid to have opposed it for a minuscule chance of of, uh, of leaks, which had not only a re one redundancy system, but they had two redundancy systems. So instead of understanding that Quebec had the Lac-Megantic disaster that, of course, burned that town, because Quebec now uh, imports some 30 to 40 percent of our oil from Venezuela, among other countries, going to Portland, Maine, and then up by train into Quebec. Instead of that, they could have had a safe uh, pipeline that finally connected the country. Uh, this Canada spends $39 million a day, a day, buying foreign oil. Because, of course, we give each province the right to sell their resources, whether it's oil in Alberta or hydroelectricity in Quebec, anywhere they want to first. So uh, this is one of the things that Legault has discussed. He has not come down firmly, but the question is, will the companies come back to build it after going through the Quebec bureaucracy. Yeah, that's a good point, and particularly with Trudeau still in power, but that may change in a year's time. So the with, with the new pipeline disaster is going to have a yeah. long, long resonation in corporate memory. Well, you know, with a, with a new government, with a, with a new government barrel at, at starting its mandate, if he were to come out, if Legault were to come out and say, I'm in favor of Energy East, that's it. I'm going to work toward it. I think the I think the companies would come back. I think there would be the, I think the political will will be there, and the financial support might be there as well. I I think they will, but you have to let me let me pivot and put this in a in a broader context. Francois Legault was elected. I, I want listeners, uh, and I was just talking with your colleague Rob Breckenridge uh, a couple of days ago uh, in Calgary. The depth of this and the breadth of this victory. They not only took seventy four of one hundred and twenty five seats; they came second in thirty six. Let that sink in for a second. And the message was very simple. Leaner government, he's, got a, he's committed to reducing 30,000 bureaucrats by early retirement and another 100,000 by elimination of their positions over four years. Now, Quebec has more bureaucrats for 8.5 million people than California does for 35 million people. Let that sink in for a second. He wants to then lower taxes, increase incentives, and make things easier for foreign investors to come in. Um, it, it, 
decrease compliance rules. The Fraser Institute and the Center for Policy Alternatives, right wing and left wing, have both concluded that Quebec businesses lose 19 full working days a year in compliance. Just paperwork. That's a full working month. Uh, so the Legault factor has been has been very deep and very broad. Now, people will say, well, why should that make a difference when Quebec supposedly has such a, a bubbling economy? Well, it's not quite so because people aren't feeling it. Yes, we've kept our credit rating better than Ontario's, but mostly that's been done by internal borrowing from retirement funds like our central pension fund, and they had no choice but to do that. And yes, the general business climate has gotten better, but the man on the street, is he feeling it that much? Not so much. This has been very important and very able financial work, but what Legault wants to do now is actually get fresh money in where the government doesn't have to keep subsidizing it all. So has the has the did the prime objective of the, of the Quebec voter then change? I was there for the last one. I left in two thousand and sixteen, so I was there for the right. last the last one. And I remember standing in the in the uh, polling area, the voting area, and it was in an anglophone, largely anglophone community in the eastern townships. And one of the people standing in front of me said, "If uh, if Marwa wins, the convoy leaves at midnight." Um. So now. The, that was still the talk was still all about what the Parti Quebecois wanted or what the Liberals wanted, and sovereignty was always going to be in play to a certain uh, extent. Now, it, has it that, was in play. Has, is, is, is it still in play, or has it largely been kicked to the curb? Sovereignty will never disappear. Remember that 35% of the population voted for two parties, the Parti Quebecois and the Quebec Solidaire, that have sovereignty as their main goal or in their platform. So that's not going to disappear. But for the first time in 50 years, the government of Quebec and the official opposition are ostensibly federalist parties. They will strongly represent Quebec's interests in Ottawa, but within a united Canada. Now, that's a sea change. Most of the population doesn't even remember 1969, 1970, the last year when that, when that occurred. Uh, the, the, 20, the, the, the 2014 election, remember, was very much a rejection of Pierre-Carl Polito's fist pump. That's right. Determination on that timid fist pump. It wasn't so timid, and that continued. He had, he had his head down. You're right. He bowed his head. The timidity was in his head, not in his fist. Uh, so this is a continuation, I think, of, of that. And Legault came out with a very clear message, as I, as I uh, recounted, on a number of major points. Lower taxes, smaller government, business investment that's not out of your pockets. Uh, and that resonated. People are tired. People are put upon in Quebec. Now, he's got to, that's a big agenda to come through on. It, it is. It, it's doable. But he's got to come through on it. What about this issue of immigration? First of all, Legault wants immigration, I understand, down 18%. And then there's the issue of the language test. After three years, you don't pass the language test, you're asked to leave. You took him on on that in your editorial, and I'm sure in the editorial board meeting as well. What's this one about, Beryl? Well, I, I took him on on the second part of it. So he wants to reduce immigration and try to get Quebec back to, this, to a system where that actually Canada had until the point system. Uh, which was um, more of a selection of people. Not everybody being equal, but who can best adapt, who brings what skills, um, and that's fine. And that, that's, you know, you could, be, you could have a reasonable debate on it. Now, on the second thing, that he wanted to give this test for values and for language, that kind of blew up in his face in the third week of the campaign. He had a bad week. But he cleverly walked it back. And he's kind of retreated from that position by the fourth week. 
And uh, I'm like what, unfortunately, Premier Cuillard did. Premier Cuillard, your, your listeners may remember, in uh, toward the end of the campaign, made an unfortunate comment about how families can, a family of four can survive on $75 a week food. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. That wasn't very good. And when he was given a chance to walk that back, he doubled down on it and instead gave a shopping list. So that that does didn't work out. Uh, that didn't work out. So you don't think well. that you don't think that Legault is going to go with the language test after three years? That's just no, going to slide he, off the he, table. He himself he himself walked it back uh, okay. to where by the end of the campaign it, it wasn't there anymore. Now talk to us about the. He said he'd use the notwithstanding clause to defend legislation he's going to bring forward. If it or is it the old uh, legislation from 2014? I believe. No, no, no. So and, this and is this is the religious symbols issue, right? This is very important for, for, for all Canadians to understand. In 2014, Pauline Madwa brought in Bill 60, a charter of values, which said that you can't have religious symbols anywhere, even in, the, in health services, even in social services, nowhere. His version is, is quite different. He's saying something that everybody from James Madison uh, in the United States at the beginning of, of that republic, to Nicolas Sarkozy, who passed the same kind of law eight years ago in France when he was president, the argument is this, and it's, not a, it's an argument that I'm not unsympathetic to, that where you form the intellectual character of a state and where you have authority, that is, where you make the laws in the legislature, where you interpret them in the courts, where you enforce them in the security services, and even where you teach young minds in public schools, there'll be no overt examples of religious symbols. That's his idea. And it was on that that he talked about the notwithstanding clause. That idea, and his version of it, has broad support. His only problem is he is faced with the same problem that Matawa had, the cross in the Assembly. The National Assembly has a cross above the Speaker's chair put in there by Maurice Duplessis in the worst years of Quebec history when Duplessis, in his authoritarian government, had made a deal with the Catholic Church, basically gave them education, control over, over, over health, and to manifest that partnership they put up a cross over the speaker's chair in the assembly quebec that a lot of canadians may not know had a firewall between that between faith and state uh, sir wilfred laurie once said we talk about lady today in 1905 he said it has been the pride of my political life that i have been condemned by protestant parsons and excommunicated by roman priests and then came to Plessy. for legos as i wrote and as i told him personally for lego to have any credibility with this bill He's got to take down that cross, because that cross in the Assembly is not like the cross on Mount Royal in Montreal, which is to remember Cartier putting up a cross and de Maisonneuve putting up a cross. You could say, using Pauline Marois' words, that it has a cultural aspect to it. You can't say that about the cross in the Assembly. You can't have a Christian exemption. So when does he take power, officially? Uh, good question. He had a meeting with, uh, with Couillard this, uh, a couple of days ago, and the transition teams are working. And uh, he has to name his cabinet, and when he says he's ready, they'll be they'll be sworn in. Massive thing, by the way, about the transition team. Yeah. He's, this is a coalition like the Union Nationale was a coalition. It's yeah. not a party like the Liberals yeah. or the Parti Québécois. So his the head of his transition team is Catherine Lubier, who was uh, Prime Minister Harper's Quebec manager, if you like, director for like six years. Right. His communications secretary is Carl Vallée, who did the same job for Prime Minister Harper. The head of his campaign, uh, the technical head of, his, of, of the campaign, Bridget Legault, uh, was uh, working with the federal liberals for many years. And um, 
one of the speechwriters, I believe his name is Stefan Goyer, if I'm not mistaken, used to work for Gilles de Sepp and the Bloc Québécois. Okay, so we have about a minute. With this new, this new government, this new party, this new coalition, there's a, every chance, I hear you saying, of a better relationship with the rest of Canada, if you will. There's That's a chance sure. that the Energy East may be looked at and even approved, and there'll be a different approach by Legault on the issue of the carbon tax, more in line with what the firewall premiers, is what I'm calling them, the firewall premiers have decided on, and not with uh, what Cuillard and Wynne were pushing just a few months ago, or actually with, well, with Cuillard's case, just a couple of days ago. This is a new ball game. It's a new way of looking at government. Yeah. Remember that the only liberal governments left in the country, I believe, are Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. I'm not sure what the situation with Brian Gallant is. change, huh? Uh, it's a hell of a change. And remember that Energy East was only defeated because the Greens scream loud, not because they have a majority. And unfortunately, politicians tend to go to whoever screams the loudest. All right, I've got to go, my friend, but thank you okay. as always. Great talking to you. Pleasure talking to you. Beryl Wiseman, editor-in-chief of The Suburban. He's a good guy. The Indian Resource Council is an indigenous advocacy organization which represents the oil and gas and associated interests of over 130 First Nations communities in this country. And the IRC is urging senators to oppose Bill C-69, which would dramatically change the review process in the energy sector. Stephen Buffalo is the president and CEO of IRC, the Indian Resource Council. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Buffalo, thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me today. What do you uh, what do you make of uh, of of the situation in in Quebec if uh, if if the new government in Quebec were to look favorably upon the construction of the Energy East pipeline? That would be a a, a major major development and a step in the right direction for everybody. Oh, absolutely! You know. Uh... <clears throat> Obviously, being from Alberta, you know, we, we scratch our head why we can't get some of our oil and gas out that way. Uh, I understand there's a ton of hurdles, <laughs> but in the same sense, you know, it just makes good uh, sense for Canada, good sense for our, our not only oil and gas producing nations of, uh, of uh, First Nation, but, you know, it, it just, it all just lines up. But, uh, you know, obviously, we... From a First Nation standpoint, we, we're never at those tables to even hear or discuss or even to talk about a project like that. So that, yeah. that's, you know, really my first initiative is that our leaderships, you know, not necessarily the AFN, not necessarily the Indian Resource Council of Canada, but, you know, our leaderships are at the table with not only the province, not only the proponent, but the federal government as well. So what kind of, what level of acceptance is there for that idea from the federal governments and from provincial governments that, that, that First Nations should be part of all the discussions, all of the conversations, all of the decision-making when it comes to major initiatives in this country, particularly when it comes to energy uh, sector developments? What's the response you're getting? Well, you know, I, I think for the most part, you know, we it, it's it's positive, you know, only because there's a sense of optimism that, you know, some of our rights and our issues may be addressed. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada definitely stepped forward and, and acknowledged those rights uh, <clears throat> out on the coast <laughs> with the TMX. But, you know, it, it's really about, you know, exercising some sort of uh, partnership that we see, some of us see, in, in not only in the treaties, but with the uh, United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, uh, the free power and informed consent is something that we can definitely address and, you know, and give us an opportunity to create a national energy strategy to, 
to look at, you know, future projects going down the road because at the end of the day, you know, there, there's some violation and, and you know, uh, we, we kind of want to see some <clears throat> a better form of economic development than the, 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 uh, the constraints that were struck with, with the Indian Act. So it's it's outside of the box, yes, and, and you know some people are used to it. Absolutely, majority of Canada still don't understand a lot of First Nations issues that are being now brought to the forefront. I get that, but you know uh, at the same time, you know if, if we can be part of the the equation, you know I think we'll see a lot of not only success for First Nations communities but for Canada in general. What uh, what's the position then of the 130 over 130? Indigenous communities in Canada that uh, IRC represents on the oil and gas and uh, other economic interests front. Let's go with the pipelines and the development of the of the uh, of the oil sands. What's the what's the fundamental position and approach of IRC on that? Well, obviously, you know they they, they uh, see that they're part of the natural resource sector with their lands, and there's obviously some formations that they can take advantage of to help boost their own economies uh, in their communities. So obviously, I, I think they'd like to see a pipeline done. Uh, like, we can get a debate all day about how safe the pipelines are, as opposed to having them on rail and being trucked on the highway. Um, there are some, you know, obviously some environmental concerns, you know, but I, I think here in Canada, people have to realize, and even my, our own people, First Nation communities, that understand that, you know, the pipeline monitoring and the regulations are world-class. Our oil and gas production in Canada is world-class. You know, it, 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 and that being environmentally conscious, uh, it costs money. <laughs> you know, so we, we've kind of come to, like, the majority of the, uh, the membership of the Indian Resource Council, and, you know, some of the communities that don't have oil and gas have kind of come to terms with, with how things are done. You know, because now there's a big movement on the repatriation and, and re getting our, 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 the lands back to what they used to be. You know, that's that's the big desire now. A uh, couple of reasons. One is that, you know, it, it just makes sense to do that. Secondly is that our populations are growing and there's only so much land inside the uh, reservation boundary, I'll call it. Um, but, you know, we've come to terms with the oil and gas production. We've come to terms with how these pipelines are going forward. And it, it, it's, it's, it's something that would definitely help not only... Canada, but, you know, our product, too, needs to move, and we'd love to see our oil and gas get the top dollar and, and you know, uh, go on, go forth from there. Now, so the, ar- the argument that we hear constantly from those who are opposed to pipelines is that First Nations are constantly and totally opposed to pipelines, and that's just not true. Um, you know, I've spoken with Calvin Helene about the, uh, about the energy uh, spirit uh, system, the uh, Eagle Spirit system, and, right. and he's told us the 34 of 35 First Nations on whose territory that pipeline would run are fully yep. in favor of it, 34 out of 35. And there's something in the news release that I received from uh, from you, Indian Resource Council, urges senators to oppose Bill C-69. We'll talk about that in a second. But a very yep. interesting point was made, and that is if consultation with First Nations has to take place, and the court has said that, then perhaps one of the best ways to approach this is to have First Nations Speak with First Nations. Right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There, there is some support of uh, First Nations. You know, you look at Northern Gateway and, and the, the agreements that were done there, and it was set to go. Uh, the only issue that I heard, and this is coming from uh, Ellis Ross, 
I think he's a liberal or he was a former chief. He said Kitimat was a spot that the engineers picked and, you know, the local communities and, and, and the people that lived there for many, many generations had given them five other landing areas. But still, yet, you know, some engineers decided that Kitimat is the place to put the uh, the ending line of the pipeline. But, you know, saying that, though, you know, they, they see the economic opportunity, you know, and, and the big key there was that, you know, there was ownership. And and when, when you really break it down as to uh, how these pipelines go, other than then the construction costs of putting the pipeline in. There's revenue going through that pipe. <laughs> you know, from what I hear, it's about six bucks a barrel. And, and how can, if it's going through, for example, my community, how can I not be a part of that revenue stream? So, you know, that's, ownership is definitely uh, something that has to be taken in consideration moving going forward. Uh, the TMX, same thing. You know, it, it can, has that opportunity there. But, you know, ownership and in, in, in the proper consultation needs to be done as well, you know. And that's what I'm sure every every Canadian don't understand is when that money goes through the pipeline, <clears throat> how much money is, you know, kinder uh, making, how much taxation dollars go to the federal government, to the provincial government, and to the municipalities. And if it's going through a first-nation community, well, you know, there should be something there as well as, as far as tax revenue or whatever you want to call it. So... Those are some of the issues that I, I can identify. But again, you know, working interests, jobs, those all these other things that, that come with it are imperative as well. What is it what's the message that you have for the senators? What do you want them to do and why? Well, you know, for the most part, you know, our uh, our communities have kind of come to par with industry in, in the resource energy sector. Uh we we've got our partnerships, we've got our own oil and gas companies and it's Difficult as that was, you know, going through the hurdles of the Indian Act, which was so constraining, uh, we've made headway. We've made some big headway. You know, we got Frog Lake Energy uh, on the big development, Tag D operation in Onion Lake. Uh, Samson in Muscogee's area was uh, was a big, big start over that, where I come from. And, you know, the, the tar sands, you know, Fort Mackay and, and Chief Jim Boucher and what they're doing with the with the tank farm up there. So, you know, there's been a lot of progress made in, in this sector. And, you know, it is, it's employed a lot of our people. And it, it's compensated for uh, the lack of federal funding we, we are stuck with under the Indian Act with the com- com- Comprehensive Funding Agreements. So, you know, we, we found ways to, to, to be a part of it. And it, it's been a struggle. You know, uh, years ago, we, we like in Samson, you know, we had nobody in oil and gas. Uh, we are the uh, Bonnie Glen Pool in Pigeon Lake was pumping 100,000 barrels a day of oil to Edmonton, and uh, we couldn't get our we couldn't get a, a handle on it. So you know, decisions were made for us, and all we <laughs> our, our our former leaders were at the table, just you know, really accepting what was given to them. And, you know, and that has changed. You know, hence the Indian Oil and Gas Act, and uh, like I said, you know, now that we've come to the fast forward to today. You know, we've got companies going. We've got uh, field services. We 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 got an array of uh, of companies. Now, let me there. let me ask you this: is is it yep. your is it your sense that the federal government, the current federal government, is interested primarily in being obstructionist as far as developing any new energy projects is concerned, or moving forward with those that are already started? Well, for me, it's, you know, from my vantage point, you know. It seems that they consulted with groups that agree with them. 
They haven't consulted with the groups that don't quite agree with them. And, of course, we're, we're going to be on the same page as far as the environmental concerns are. You know, uh, but in the same sense, you know, you look at the changes in technology and how things are done. So, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, takes care of that little a little bit. But, you know, again, going forward, you know, for example, you know, we, we don't consult with each other. So when we're saying no to TMX, yes, it, it's tremendous and commendable that you, you got the government and a corporate giant at Kinder Morgan to a standstill. You know, but in the same sense, what are we going to do moving forward? Because that decision is definitely hampering what our membership want to do. I have, a quote, I, I have a quote from you here. Yep. Left as it is, Bill C-69 will harm Indigenous economic development, create barriers to decision-making, and make Canada unattractive for resource investment. This legislation must be stopped yep. immediately. Right. Immediately. <laughs> Well, um, we have about 30 seconds left. Do you have meetings scheduled with senators? What are you going to do? Well, you know, again, you know, I think if our, if our First Nations people and leaders are at the table, you know, not only with the senators, but whoever's making these decisions for us, you know, I think that's the, the starting point. You know, yeah. I've always said that, and I think if we can get together at the table, I think we'll be part of the solution. And have First Nations speak with First Nations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. We Buffalo. need to create our own national energy strategy. And, you know, that's our one of our focuses coming up at our next AGM here in, in January, uh, January 16th, 17th in, in Satina Nation at the Great Eagle Casino okay. Convention Center. So that's what we're going to try to work well, let's. Why don't we, you and I talk on the air then? Let's get yeah. back in touch and we'll talk then. I thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. Stephen Buffalo, the uh, CEO and chairman, uh, president of the the Indian Resource Council opposed to Bill C-69. I just want to read you what Steve said. Let me put him on the line. It's okay if I, uh, if I just read what you, what you emailed me? Certainly. Okay. I was until now hoping the person that sold my daughter fentanyl would be arrested and convicted after this whole miscarriage of justice regarding Tory Stafford. What's the point, Steve? And, uh... Steve, just over a year ago, lost his beautiful stepdaughter from an overdose. Her name was Ginny. She was 22. She was uh, suffering with depression, and finally uh, heroin and fentanyl ended her life, and the uh, dealer has not been identified. Must be a huge hole in your heart. Yeah, it'll always be there. Um, it just doesn't matter. There's not a day that goes by that you don't. Anybody wouldn't think about their child that would pass away, you know, regardless of the age of Tori's age or Ginny's age. Yeah, it's just it's part of it's part of the rest of your life. I remember trying to think when it first happened how long it would take me to get over it, and finally figured out it's going to take forever. Yeah. So, and fentanyl when... that was a year and a half ago, and that was when the fentanyl really just started to make its way into Ontario. Like, it's been a legal drug, you know, and used properly medically. But illegal fentanyl, basically, it's a weapon. You put enough fentanyl in it, and you kill anybody you want. So, I guess it was a few months after Ginny passed away, I sent a letter to the Attorney General asking her about the laws regarding fentanyl, and um, she finally got back to me, and sounded relatively good when she told me that even low-level traffickers 
would receive the most severe sentences. And then, you know, kind of had to wait for a case to work its way into the courts. And it's like a couple months after that, there was a young mother in Woodstock. She overdosed with fentanyl. They had the trial. The guy charged with manslaughter, and he got two and a half years for manslaughter and the trafficking. And that was it. So threw off time for good behavior. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's walking out, you know, before he even goes in. Probably would have served 60% of his time, 50% of his time, and, yeah. then, and then been paroled. So that, that's what a life is worth. And not, not much. Not much. And not much. And when you hear and watch what's going on, and your son uh, watches what's going on, the even with with eight year old Tori's killer, what does that fill you with? Just a sense of of hopelessness, Steve. What's what's the what's the overriding emotion? What do you take to bed with you at night when you when you think about this? What's the end result of of what you experience? Main emotions: it's sadness and disappointment and frustration. Like, it's hard to explain, but you burn up so much of your anger when your child passes going through that initial process that it's hard to ever get back. We never want to get back to that point of anger again, but everything else seems kind of muted in perspective. But like Latori, it's it, it just brought it up that people just aren't getting the same justice. And... You know, it's ridiculous. Like, you talk to anybody, and anybody I've talked to, everybody, regardless of their politics or what, say that that person, I can't even say her name, should go back to prison. You know, it's, it's not even, it's just common sense. It's right and wrong. We teach our kids right and wrong. <laughs> when they're little, and it seems like to get older, right and wrong doesn't mean that much anymore to some people and I can tell you one thing any prime minister since confederation his son or daughter was murdered in that same way they'd rewrite the charter of rights to make sure that that person was put in prison forever and like Tory or any other child same situation deserves the same consideration but they I don't know they just get into their political mindsets where they see black and they see white like I just cannot believe there's not members of the liberal party that are sitting there that do not believe exactly that she should go back to prison and they're sitting there and I just hope they're there they're Thanksgiving you know thinking maybe it's a short walk across the aisle for a little girl because if we can't take care of our kids. And when something happens to them, punish the people that do it. Like, what the hell? What do you do? What do you do? Well, sorry, I'm frustrated, I guess. You know, I, I remember speaking with Doug Walsh, and this goes back about uh, 30 years. He was then the assistant attorney general for the state of Washington. I've never forgotten his name. and We used to come on the show quite regularly. Justice issues were huge. And I remember Doug Walsh saying... If you don't feel like you have a justice system, then you don't have one. Well, I don't think a lot of people feel they have a, yep. one that works. Yep. 
But there's the justice system, and some people can be rehabilitated and should probably be rehabilitated. But also, when it comes down to a cold-blooded killer, there's no rehabilitation. No. They have to be punished. Yeah. Steve, I, uh, I, I, I can't imagine how you, how you feel. I, I have a little bit of an idea after dealing with so many parents of murdered children, but it's, it's so sad because time and again we hear the same level of frustration, anger, fear, and concern for other people who might find themselves in the same situation that you and other parents of murdered kids because your, your, your daughter was murdered. Um, find themselves in. My friend, I, I have to end the show for, for today. Thank you for talking to us. It, you, what you have done, what you have said, will make a greater impression than anything I could say or most anybody else could say. Yeah, take good care. Just quickly, just offer my condolences to the people down in New York that lost their lives in that Terrible crash, yeah. Take care, Steve. Thank you, Ray. All the best. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.